Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Tangible objects could create intangible feelings of joy. And so that, um, it became a quest and I started, um, I started, you know, researching it from a scientific perspective, um, digging into the psychology literature. Um, and you know, and, and also looking from the design side. And it was pretty clear that there is a gap between these two fields and that um, what scientists are learning about our relationship to the physical world um, doesn't really make it across into design very often because design is a really intuitive discipline. Um, and then on the other hand, psychology is a really inward looking discipline. So for generations, um, psychologists have focused on attitudes, on behavior, and, um, you know, now neurochemistry, um, but there really isn't much focus on our surroundings. I think we dismiss it as trivial as, you know, like to focus too much on material objects makes you shallow. It makes you superficial. And so none of us want to look too closely at that or think that that plays too much of a role in our lives. Um, but in fact, the science shows that there is a, a pretty big relationship between our surroundings and our emotional health and well-being. Um, it just hadn't been laid out. Um, and so this for me was like a, a, it was the ideal exercise actually of like going through and creating, you know, taking uh, insights from all these different disciplines that were sort of separated in different fields within psychology and piecing them together to try to create an understanding of how our things influence our emotions. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Ingrid, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure to have you here. So I, by some random act of serendipity, stumbled up on your book at an airport bookstore uh, your book, Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness. And it was the one book that stood out on the shelf. And I thought, okay, you know what? I want to see what this is all about. And I pretty much tore through it. In one flight, I pretty much read the entire thing. And I couldn't put it down, uh, all of which we will get into. But before we do that, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your own life and career? Uh, well, both of my parents were doctors. And um, my father was a, a neuro-oncologist um, and uh, has since moved on from that field. Uh, my mother was a dermatologist. Um, and so I grew up um, very comfortable with science and, um, you know, 
medical language being used at the dinner table. Um, you never had a bruise in my house. You had a subdural hematoma. <laughs> so, um, so I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because, and then I had, you know, very, um, my grandmother was very, very creative. And so I think I had this really interesting merging of creative influences with, um, you know, scientific parents. And so when I, you know, I spent a month with my grandparents every summer, I would go down to their retirement community and it was like the best thing ever for me um, because they would spoil me. Um, and we would do craft projects. We would do art projects. Um, we'd go to the craft store and find what looked interesting. And then, you know, maybe we would make a quilt, we would try oil painting, whatever it was that sort of caught my interest. And so I think curiosity, whether it was creative or scientific, was always fueled in my house. Um, and uh, that really, I think, made a lot of where I ended up makes a lot of sense because um, both of those sides of me were nurtured and they were never viewed as incompatible. Um, I could be uh, into art and I could also be into biology and those two things, um, you know, were richly reinforced. Mm -hmm. So why do you think it is that in our education system, both those things aren't nurtured uh, and seen as compatible, particularly the creative side, because it's often seen as, oh yeah, go do that as a hobby, but there's no way that should be nurtured too much particularly if you grew up like I did in an immigrant family. Yeah, I think, well, I, you know, some of it might be that parents are, you know, they're worried about how their kids are going to make a living. I think, you know, the world is um, challenging. It's only getting more difficult. And I think that parents who were raised to believe that, you know, there are certain logical paths to careers, um, maybe they don't see the value of creativity. I think I went to sort of a traditional um, university for my undergrad. I went to Princeton for my undergraduate degree. And then um, when I went to art school, I think that was maybe confusing for my parents um, because, you know, they sort of understood the path that I had taken, um, you know, in my undergrad and then um, going out into the world doing market research and branding and, and that sort of stuff. And then when I said, no, I want to be a designer, um, I think it was, they were like, oh, so you'll go to, you know, they, they sort of, they didn't even have art school in their framework. Um, they thought I would study design at, you know, another traditional university. And so it was a little bit of a readjustment. So even though those things are encouraged, I think uh, they still wonder how you're going to turn it into a living. Um, and I, I think there's just a lot of tradition there. I don't know that um, in terms of our education system, that's probably a bigger question. But in terms of families, I think, you know, families want the best for their kids, but it may not always be, they may not always see the the pathways that we can. Yeah. You, know, you mentioned curiosity, and this is one of those things that seems to be at the core of every single person that I interview is that they're incredibly curious about the world around them. And yet on the flip side of that, I see that being lost as people become older and older and they get very set in their ways. And I, I can see it happening in my own life. There are moments where I'm like, okay, you know what? I don't want to drive to a coffee shop that's down the street. There's a Starbucks right around the corner. This will take two minutes then I can come back to getting to work. And, and at moments I wonder what causes us to lose that sort of sense of curiosity that we possess when we're kids. It's a, yeah, it's a really good question. I think that, I mean, one of the, I wonder about the role of technology in this because I feel like answers are 
at our fingertips all the time. And so there's less space in which to wonder. Um, so I, I, I question whether that's some of that is age, I'm sure, because, you know, there's, there are more knowns in the world. There are fewer unknowns as you get older. And so the world starts to, um, I think we, there's, there's less to wonder about, I guess. I mean, there's an infinite amount to wonder about, but I think we start to feel, um, like we're less confronted with things that with sort of spaces of the unknown as we get older. Um, but I do think that there's the, the habitual, turning to the device for an answer. Oh, I don't know that. Oh, I'll just Google it. It's like the, 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 the time between question and answer has shortened so much that I think there's less space in which to wonder. And that I think is one of the biggest curiosity killers. And that, and I think that we're spending less time looking at the world around us. And so there's less there are fewer opportunities to notice what's weird. I think weirdness is the beginning of curiosity. It's like when something, when there's cognitive dissonance, something doesn't make sense. Um, and if we are not sort of looking up and out and around us as much, I think that we lose the, that spark for curiosity. I notice it in myself too. When I'm spending too much time immersed in work or in um, technology, then I have fewer of those random flashes of, huh, that's weird. Let me go investigate this. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because uh, the other day I was browsing Amazon because it drives me crazy not to have new books to read in the morning. And I, you know, I, I keep a running list of things that I'm interested in. And I, I couldn't believe that I was browsing Amazon and I was like, why am I having a hard time finding something to read? And I'd spent all week looking at recommendations from people like Ryan Holiday, looking at Bill Gates' blog, and I was like, wait a minute, the last three books that I discovered that I really liked, I found by being away from technology randomly in a bookstore. One of them was yours. Another one was uh, a book called Selfie by a guy named Will Storr. And the other was uh, The War on Normal People by Andrew Yang. And it, it occurred to me that, wait a minute, wow, I haven't set foot in a bookstore. And so I just wandered in the Barnes & Noble. Next thing I know, 10, you know, 10 new things that I want to read. Yeah. I, I mean, I think certainly like Amazon is optimized for a search methodology, not for a browse methodology. And I think that once we enter a browse mindset, um, that is something that sort of broadens out our opportunities to, to discover and to find things. So you went to Princeton first. I went to a similar type as well, I went to Berkeley. And I, I wonder, what is the contrast in terms of the types of people that you met, the way that you were taught, uh, and, and just the experiences that you had at art school versus being in Princeton? Oh, it was night and day. And it's so funny because I thought, I think, you know, going to an Ivy League school, doing something that you you think that it's really hard when you're there and you think, oh, I survived that. Like, I'm good. I can, you know, you, at Princeton, you have to write a a thesis. Um, I actually wrote a novel for my thesis that was never published, sort of put it in a drawer and haven't looked at it again. Um, but you know, it was hundreds of pages. And so I thought, okay, I can, I can art school, no problem. And I get to art school and art school is, um, it's so much harder in a totally different way. Um, and part of it was because I really didn't have much background in the field. And so I, you know, I was unprepared in that way. Um, and, uh, I think someone probably looked at my portfolio and thought, mm, well, she has good ideas. She has no skills whatsoever, but we can sort of give her the skills. And so that's what my beginning in art school was like, was that I had a lot of catch up to do on the skills front. Um, but also 
it's way more hands-on. You're working with your hands all the time. Um, it's way more experimental. There's much, I mean, there is some reading, but it's much less about reading and um, reacting to what you're reading and synthesizing. And it's much more about feeling your way through, you know, blank expanses. So you're given a, you know, a, a few lumps of clay and you're told to make something, um, or you're given a plas a, a box of plaster and you're told to sculpt it into something you're learning, um, with your hands to find your way toward forms. And there's, you know, that for me, there was no blueprint for that. Um, so I was starting fresh and, uh, and, and of course everything you learn in art school is through critique. So, um, whereas in, in my undergrad, you would, I would go to lectures and then I would go to, you know, smaller discussion classes, seminars and, um, have discussions. And then, you know, once every few weeks I would produce a paper in art school, you're producing every single week for every single class. And so I would be up until sometimes 3am every night, um, trying to, you know, one day it would be producing drawings. The next day it would be, um, sort of three-dimensional sculptures. The next day it would be color studies. Um, so I would be painting and drawing and doing, and, and sometimes doing a lot of physical labor, um, construction labor, um, to create things. And, uh, and then you'd get feedback on it and then you'd go refine that for the next week. So you are, um, you're in this constant cycle of, uh, of feedback and production. So there's a lot more actual work, I think. Um, but there's also a lot more, um, I think you learn very rapidly because you're in, you're constantly, um, getting feedback on your work. Uh I wonder what are the habits and routines and rituals that have stayed in your life as a byproduct of this? I think the thing that has become very apparent to me after 10 years of doing this podcast, writing two books is, is how much of this is about a commitment to mastery and then how much of it is, okay, I'm going to do this thing every day because I'm so committed to getting good at it. And it's also, like you said, you're just producing. And I wonder out of your experiences, what has stayed with you, uh, like over the course of your life and your career? I don't know that I have set habits. I mean, okay. So one thing that I do do is I have a notebook with me at all times. Um, and I'm very, it's so funny. It's a very specific about the notebook and the pen, the whole thing. It's always a Le pen. Um, I use different colors, but primarily, um, when I'm writing, I use black, um, and I use a Muji notebook and I don't even know what size, it's like a B5 notebook. It's like a, you know, brown, uh, covered notebook. And I've been doing that for about well, almost 10 years. So I have dozens and dozens and dozens of these notebooks. Um, and I think that there's something about writing longhand that is really, really important to me. I, it's not to say that I always write everything longhand, but like I, sometimes I will just start blogging in, in, um, in the computer or working on an idea, you know, in, uh, I use Scrivener for writing books and I use, um, Ulysses for writing other stuff. Um, so sometimes I will just like dive straight in, but having the ability to go back and forth to longhand is really important to me. Um, so that's one thing. And then I don't know. I mean, I think what I learned from design school is that, um, is you need to have patience with whatever new thing. So I take on a lot of new things. I've been, um, I taught myself calligraphy a few years ago. I taught myself, uh, gouache painting. I sort of learned gouache while I was in school, but I've been sort of doing more with it. And I 
think what I've learned is a certain patience that um, you're not going to be good at it right away. And you kind of just have to dig in and um, go through the sort of rituals of uh, like doing something in a repetitive way over and over and over again and not judging it too much. Um, and so that's something that I think it's a, ha- I don't know if it's a habit or it's a, it's an approach, but it is something that kind of patience with my own creativity has stayed with me um, through whatever I do. But I think that the thing that has struck me a lot uh, in the conversations that I've had, particularly with really, really young people and people who are just starting out with any creative endeavor is how, how much of patience is in short supply these days because of the fact that we have this world in which we can get instant applause and, and rapid feedback like never before. And so the expectation is, okay, because I can go from idea to execution so quickly, I'll be able to succeed just as quickly. I 100% agree. Patience is, it's like that we have no patience for anything anymore. And I notice it myself. I'm impatient. I'm impatient to see results on things that I do. And I think that's what was so powerful about writing the book is that you literally, you're not going to get any feedback for a really long time. You get a little feedback. You have early readers. You have people you're sharing things with. But um, before, the act of writing a book, I don't know if it's if you feel this way, but for me, the act of writing a book was such that I'm things don't come out fully formed for me. They come out in a bit of a a mess. And I'm again very patient with that. I recognize that, you know, it's probably not gonna the first drafts don't make sense to anyone else. They barely make sense to me. You know, maybe by the sixth draft, it's something I can actually show to someone. And so there is just gonna be a period of time where I have to live with it with myself. And uh that, you know, going from blogging where, you know, in the early days of blogging, it was so fun because you would put something up and then people would discover it. It was before social media and then they would comment on it and you would have these sort of like uh, longer dialogues over time. And now it just feels like you put something up and it's like a blip, you know, um, and it's and there's so much out there. It's so cluttered and crowded. It's like hard to um, hard to break through. But I think anyway, going from this mindset of blogging where you get rapid feedback to writing a book where you get no feedback, it does cultivate your patience in a really deep way. Well, I think that makes a perfect segue to uh, talking about the book itself and the concept. So how in the world did the intersection of you know Princeton, all of your life experiences and art school lead to this uh, subject in particular? I, I certainly wasn't looking for it. I went to design school, I thought that what I wanted to do was um, sustainable design, like eco-friendly design. That's what, that's why I went back to design school. And so I was really looking at, I thought I wanted to get into, you know, sustainable materials and um, really like sort of deep uh, technical problem solving. That's what I thought I was going to be doing. And after my first year of design school, I had a review, um, sort of a mandatory thing that everyone has to go through, like a, a rite of passage um, slash torture ritual where you've, you know, put everything out that you've made and um, the professors, there's a panel of professors that critiques it. And um, one of the professors said, your work gives me a feeling of joy. And uh, this was, I mean, for me, it was actually really irksome because I thought, you know, well, I failed because I really wanted to do something that would be taken seriously. And that's not what they see. Um, but 
also, but I was relieved, of course, because they seemed to like it. So that was good. I was going to get to stick around for another year. So there was all these conflicting feelings. Um, but, but fundamentally, there was a question because I had always thought about joy as this, you know, intangible, ineffable, fleeting thing. And here were a bunch of professors who were saying that it could come from tangible objects. And yet when I asked them how, they couldn't explain it. And so this sent my sort of analytical science-y um, brain into overdrive. And I just, I had to know why. I had to know how um, tangible objects could create intangible feelings of joy. And so that, um, it became a quest. And I started, um, I started, you know, researching it from a scientific perspective, um, digging into the psychology literature. Um, and you know, and, and also looking from the design side. And it was pretty clear that there is a gap between these two fields and that um, what scientists are learning about our relationship to the physical world um, doesn't really make it across into design very often because design is a really intuitive discipline. Um, and then on the other hand, psychology is a really inward looking discipline. So for generations, um, psychologists have focused on attitudes, on behavior, and, um, you know, now neurochemistry, um, but there really isn't much focus on our surroundings. I think we dismiss it as trivial as, you know, like to focus too much on material objects makes you shallow. It makes you superficial. And so none of us want to look too closely at that or think that that plays too much of a role in our lives. Um, but in fact, the science shows that there is a, a pretty big relationship between our surroundings and our emotional health and well-being. Um, it just hadn't been laid out. Um, and so this for me was like a, a, it was the ideal exercise actually of like going through and creating, you know, taking uh, insights from all these different disciplines that were sort of separated in different fields within psychology and piecing them together to try to create an understanding of how our things influence our emotions. Well, let's get into the, the specifics about this. Um, I, it's funny because, you know, I'm very, very hypersensitive to my environments. It's something I learned from another podcast yesterday who talks about the environments that make up our life and how every environment is either adding energy or draining energy, which I think makes a perfect segue to the first section of this, which, uh, you know, you open it by saying energy animates matter. It's the currency of life transforming inert material into breathing, feeding organisms. Simply to be alive is to vibrate with an essential dynamism. And what I loved about this was how much you talked about color. Uh, in this particular section. So can you tell us a bit about the research around color and, and what it showed? Uh, like I said, I, I was kind of blown away by doing what you said to do with my bookshelf and I, I look at it and it actually makes yeah, me smile. So uh, color, I mean, the, the whole field of color psychology, I think is a little bit um, patchy. Like the research there is patchy. I, and I think the reason is that color is more complicated than we sometimes give it credit for. So I think when we think about color, we often think about hue, right? We think about red, yellow, blue, or green. Um, and yet, um, and so, you know, sometimes there'll be, you'll see findings that like red makes us angry or, um, or it agitates us or blue is calming. Um, when in fact, you know, there are other ways to think about color too. Um, so brightness, how light a color is or how dark it is or saturation, how much pigment is in a color um, versus how much gray. And so when you think, how, so, so it's sort of like how dull a color is or how intense a color is. Um, so if you think about it that way, you can imagine actually a very calming red, like kind of like the adobe of, uh, you know, um, 
in the Southwest, you can see sort of very clay colored reds that are actually quite soothing. And you can imagine blues that are actually really quite intense and activating. Um, so I think, you know, it's hard to control for all those variables. And so what happens is you have um, all these different uh, competing claims within the field of color psychology. But one of the things that seems pretty consistent is that saturation and brightness um, and lightness of colors tends to make us feel more energetic. And so um, one of the things that I found was a study, it's a cross-cultural study of a thousand workers um, working in uh, four different countries, um, countries as diverse as Argentina, Saudi Arabia, and Sweden, um, that shows that people working in more colorful offices, more vibrant offices, are more alert, they're more confident, friendly, and joyful than people working in drab spaces. So something happens when we're exposed to these colors that is physiological. And um, and research actually shows that uh, saturated colors and and light colors tend to increase um, our sort of physiological arousal. So they do energize us on a very um, fundamental level. And one of the, you know, one of the theories behind this has to do with the fact that our color vision evolved in part to help our primate ancestors find ripe fruits um, and young leaves in the treetop canopies. And so, uh, and in some sort of vestigial way, seeing bright color is almost, it's like a sign of energy. It's like a sign of, um, of life. And if you look at environments that are, um, you know, capable of sustaining life, usually they are rich in color. Um, they have ample sunlight, they have ample water, and that usually leads to having lush vegetation, which makes them feel, um, you know, makes them vibrant in color, whereas, you know, environments that lack those things often um, lack color. And so I think uh, in some uh, visceral, unconscious way, we can sense this. And if we find ourselves in very drab environments, um, we, you know, we draw less energy from the environment. It's also true that, um, you know, color is a product of the light falling on it. And so bright colors do reflect more light um, and light is energizing to us. So that's another, you know, possible source of, you know, why color almost feels like um, like a hit of caffeine for our eyes. Yeah. So the other part you talk about is abundance. And I think the thing that struck me most in the section on abundance is when you said abundance isn't just about accumulating things. It's about surrounding yourself with a rich palette of textures that enliven your senses. Um, can you expand on that and talk about how we do that more in our own lives? Yeah. So when I first started, I noticed um, one of the ways that I went about researching this book was that I started to ask people about the things that brought them joy. And then I put pictures of them up on the wall and I started to look for patterns in these, th among these things. And I found that there were often things that had a sense of abundance to them that made us feel joyful. And that could be things like confetti, like rainbow sprinkles, like um, polka dots, uh, rainbows, you know, streaking across the sky, the multiplicity of colors. So there's something about having lots of something. And then, you know, you can see it also at buffets, right? We love all you can eat buffets. Um, and, uh, and even like, if you look at, um, I think Wes Anderson movies and like the, you know, the aesthetics he uses, there's often a sense of abundance, like the Grand Budapest Hotel, it's all these sort of windows. And there's something really joyful about seeing something like that. So, as I started to try to understand this, this actually made me feel uncomfortable because I thought, well, how can I say this? This is disconcerting to say that we find abundance joyful when we live in a world that um, is already, you know, we already feel overwhelmed by overconsumption um, and uh, overstimulated by, you know, attention overload. How can I 
how can I responsibly say that we find joy in abundance, even if it's true? You know, what is the, how, how do I understand this? And as I started to research this, I realized that, I, be, I came to realize that actually what we are attracted to is the aesthetic of abundance, the sensations of abundance, not, um, we don't actually need a lot of stuff. We need to feel, you know, and I mean, we evolved in a world where scarcity was dangerous. So of course it's natural that we find abundance joyful, but it's not that we necessarily need a lot of stuff. And in fact, a lot of stuff, like I said, can feel overwhelming um, and can make us, can cause other issues um, in our homes and in our lives. Um, But by uh, bringing in sort of rich sensations, uh, a palette of, um, of textures, uh, layering things, um, creating a sense of variety and multiplicity, it does make us feel um, like we have that abundance. And so that's why I think polka dots uh, or stripes are really interesting, right? Because they create this feeling of abundance, but they're just a surface texture. And all they are is one element repeated multiple times. So I think repeating patterns are one way to bring in a sense of abundance. Variety of color is another way. So I think this is really relevant when we think about food, um, because many of the foods that we find so joyful, like many candies, like jelly beans and, um, you know, Mike and Ike's and who knows, like a Skittles, all of these things take advantage of this principle of abundance. They have lots of variety in the colors and they make us really want them. Um, but we can bring that, those lessons back into um, foods that are healthier. And if you look at things like, you know, rainbow bowls are happening um, all over and you, I think healthy food has started to catch on to this and recognize that we can make it aesthetically more joyful, sensorially more rich. And that's a way um, to bring this feeling of abundance um, so that it's not, uh, because I think when you're trying to eat healthy, sometimes you feel you feel a sense of scarcity. There are things you can't have. There are things that you want. Um, and so if we bring that the richness back in in a sensorial way, as opposed to just in terms of quantity, um, I think we can uh, sort of satisfy that sensorial craving. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Wow. I guess that explains why the bookshelf makes me feel Totally, it, it feels like you have a sense of abundance. And, and I think abundance, you know, by organized, like, again, it's not just about having a lot of stuff, but it's about being aware of the abundance of it. And if you just have a bunch of books stacked on a shelf, um, it's just a lot of stuff. But if you see them organized by color, you become aware of uh, the sort of the range of colors within it. Um, and that is what sort of creates that feeling of abundance. Wow. Well, let's talk about this idea of freedom. Uh, it, you know, you said two things here that I want to ask you about. You said that joy thrives on the alleviation of constraints, the delicious stretch you feel in your legs on stepping out of the car at a rest stop after many hours, hours of driving as a joyful freedom. So is sleeping under the stars riding in a convertible, and skinny dipping, feeling cool water against bare skin. And the other thing you said is no matter how domesticated we've become, we all have a wild soul that beats and breathes under layers of clothing and responsibility. So how do we get back to that place and, and tap freedom through uh, talking, you know, doing the things you're talking about? I think it's about reconnecting to... So, I mean, so for me, like an experience that was really illuminating for me was after I had been working, um, for, uh, I had been sort of like just, uh, working late nights and squinting into my computer and I, you know, hadn't left the city in a long time. And, you know, we went to visit friends and, um, I was out of the city and I just felt it was like my pores, like the pores of my senses started to open back up again. And I think what happens when we are in a city is like this, uh, the sensitivity thresholds, um, on our senses start to, um, start to rise so that, um, 
if, if there's noise all around you, your senses don't want to be constantly triggered by that noise. So they start to tighten up, right? Um, and we don't, uh, we don't notice, um, all of the sensations and that's protective. Um, it helps us because, um, if we are sort of like as sensitive as we would be, uh, in a natural environment, we would be overwhelmed, um, by all that stimulation. And so when you get out into, um, a natural place, um, or a place that has more sort of natural textures, natural sensations. Um, it takes a little while, but your senses sort of recalibrate your perceptual system recalibrates back to that sort of gentler threshold. Um, and you start to hear things, you start to notice the sounds of, uh, of nature, of birds and of, and of insects, um, and wind and all of these other sensations that we don't have in our sort of sealed, hermetically sealed environments. And, um, yeah, and our senses open back up. So I think that, um, we don't realize how disconnected we are, um, from that wild self, uh, until we get out of the man-made environment for a little bit. And of course, it's not to say that that's the only way to access it. I mean, I think, you know, I talk in the book about places like the High Line um, or sort of even, you know, having houseplants in the house or, you know, small things um, that bring more um, of the sensations and the textures of nature into the man-made environment. I think that they help to break some of the the hardness of the man-made world and also the sort of rectilinearity of the man-made world and sort of bring us, put us back in touch with, um, those, those, uh, natural impulses. And of course the research on this is really, really clear, um, that even just spending three to five minutes in, in a natural setting, um, or in a garden, uh, starts to relieve anxiety, reduce blood pressure, um, reduce the tendency to ruminate and brood over problems. It quiets the part of the brain that is involved in that. Um, so, uh, I think, you know, some access to nature, uh, whether, you know, we bring it in or whether we go out to it is vital for reconnecting with that part of us. Well, as an avid surfer and snowboarder, your research basically just backs up my experience now. Totally. It's like we feel it. Um, But, you know, I think and I think the thing about nature that's really interesting is that they've actually done studies that show that we underestimate the, the benefit that we will get from spending time in nature. So, um, so we consistently, you know, when they ask people, how, how do you feel now? How do you think you'll feel after you take a walk in, in this park? People always underestimate how good they'll feel, which is why I think we don't do it more often and why we sit at our desks instead of going around the corner to the park for lunch. Um, because we just really don't think that it's going to make as big a difference as it does. So you talk about this idea of harmony, which uh, I really loved as well. And I think the thing that was really interesting to me is that the joy of order comes in large measure from what it opposes chaos and disorder. Order isn't dull and state. It's a tangible manifestation of vibrant harmony of disparate parts working in concert to sustain the graceful balance of life. And one, you know, I wonder uh, how that applies, like when we're talking about sort of the the physical world that we live in uh, and the things that are at our fingertips, how do you create harmony? So harmony, yeah, har- harmony was one of those aesthetics that in the beginning I thought, well, this is weird because um, it doesn't seem very joyful. I mean, we've just been talking about freedom and wildness and um, openness and, and uh, you know, being unconstrained. And then, uh, you know, to come back to order. But, but one of the first things that pointed me toward this 
aesthetic of joy is um, the blog Things Organized Neatly. And I started to look at all these photos and it was just really interesting to see how it really didn't matter what was being organized. I mean, you could organize, um, there was one thing that showed like knives really well organized. Knives are not very joyful, but when you see them sort of laid out all so perfectly, there's just something uh, that lights up in our brains that makes us feel good. And so I really wanted to understand what that was about and why creating order could be a, a source of joy. And I mean, there are a few things to it, but one is that there are all these um, gestalt principles of how our brains um, perceive things. And one of the things that our brains love to do is group things. So when we can start to see things as part of a larger group, um, there's something satisfying about that. And it's it's one of the faculties that helps us make sense of the world, right? So rather than going out into the forest and seeing, you know, millions of leaves, it makes a lot more sense for us to be able to group, um, you know, like sets of leaves into a, a tree and understand that there are individual trees here that are composed of these many, many different leaves. And so um, if you think about that and as it relates to the, you know, your own space, um, when you can create natural groupings of objects in your home, in your workspace, um, you know, it's not just that you're decluttering, you're actually creating a sense of visual order. And the brain really feels comfortable when there is visual order um, because it'll, it, it allows us to spot things that might be amiss or awry. So the most important thing for our brains is to be able to predict what's going to happen next. And the brain is aided in that um, when our surroundings are more orderly because it's able to, it, you know, we know that we're going to be able to spot something that's awry. Um, and so you know, having the world around us in visual order, um, whether it's color-coded books or whether it's um, things grouped um, either by color, by size, by kind, um, organized in sort of neat, uh, neat arrangements um, that are orderly and geometric, um, that follow axes of symmetry, all of those things make us feel like there's a sense of harmony in our surroundings that we can be free to focus on other things because we don't really, our brains don't have to be so vigilant for something that might, you know, pop out of the clutter at us. So the next piece of this you talked about uh, is surprise and, and there are numerous things here that I underlined, but I think that the thing that struck me most was uh, this passage in particular where you said surprise punctures our worldview, forcing us to reconcile new information with previously held beliefs when we're stressed or anxious, we become less tolerant of ambiguity and risk, which in turn makes us more likely to reject things that are strange, offbeat, or new. But in a state of joy, our mindset becomes more fluid and more accepting of difference. Uh, so it's funny because I think that you, you ask somebody if they like surprises and you often will find you know, both extremes. People, some people love them and some people say they absolutely hate them. They want things to be predictable. So... Um, how do you, I mean, how do you incorporate this into your life on a daily basis? Or I, I mean, maybe it's hard to do it on a daily basis, but how do we, how do we have this sort of sense of surprise stay in so our life? I think surprise is something that helps, um, the world feel new and fresh to us. Um, and so I, I think when we ask people, do you like surprises? Um, it's, you know, we, we often think, oh, I don't want a bad surprise. Um, so there's probably something individual in our tolerance for risk there. Um, but I think there are many ways to incorporate small and subtle surprises into our world um, that helps us feel like um, we are dis you know, discovering something new or that sort of help refresh our um are the tendency for the world to get sort of stale and dull around us. This is called hedonic adaptation, right? We, we 
um, habituate the things that we're around all the time. So something, you know, we buy something new and we absolutely love it. And then it brings us so much joy. And then over time it starts to, to dull with age. Um, so I think, you know, by incorporating little surprises, we can start to, um, refresh that it sort of starts the clock again. We, we get reminded, um, of what's joyful about it. So, uh, things that I love to do, I love to put, um, hidden color or pattern in places. Um, so my closet, uh, my hallway closet in my house has, um, cabana stripes in it. And it's really fun because you forget they're there and then you open the closet and you have this wonderful, you know, little surprise. Um, and, uh, and you can do the same thing with your drawers. You can do the same thing with like a hall bathroom that you don't go in all the time. Um, so little surprises, um, like that, that's one way to do it. Um, I think socks are a really fun thing that can be surprising. Um, so, you know, the rest of you might be, um, dressed in a serious outfit. Um, and this was actually something that happened to me. I, you know, when I was, um, I had a very stressful presentation. I was 24. I was still just early on in my career and I had been given um, way more responsibility than I thought I could handle at that time. And I had to give a two hour client presentation. And um, one of the clients in these, it was in a big boardroom and there were all these executives and they were all wearing suits. And one of the clients, I looked down and he had rainbow socks on. And suddenly I just felt better because I felt like, oh, I, you know, everything's not a given. Everything's not as I necessarily think it is. Look at this little like thing that I did not expect to happen. Maybe these people are actually much nicer than they seem. Um, and much, uh, and, and maybe I won't totally bomb this. Um, so, uh, surprises like that can disrupt what you think, um, is happening. Um, another thing I love to do is hide little, um, hide little notes for someone, um, or, uh, hide souvenirs. I hide souvenirs for myself. So if I go for a walk on the beach, um, I put some, a couple of shells in my pocket. And then, um, when, you know, that coat goes out of season, it goes in the closet, but then I take it back out and there are the shells in my pocket, um, when I reach in for them. So they're sort of a reminder of a, a past joyful event. So I think there are all kinds of things like you, that you can do like this to sort of create these um, sense of joyful surprise. So I want to do this last piece uh, a little bit backwards because I think that it, for the sake of our conversation, the, the last piece I want to cover makes sense at the end. But you talked about celebration. And this one struck me in particular uh, just because I had a, a weird celebration experience. You said celebrations mark the pinnacles of joy in our life. We celebrate marriages and partnerships and victories and harvest growth and new beginnings. I had a birthday this year that was so awful that I thought, you know what, I have no interest in celebrating another birthday for a while. Uh, like nobody came for one thing. Uh, I got to spend, you know, we, had two, we tried to have two birthday parties. One of them got completely canceled. And the second one was me and three couples, my sister and her fiance, my mom and dad, and my sister's friend and her husband. And I thought, this is a pretty shitty way to spend mm -hmm. a 40th birthday. Uh, so you know, that's why the, the section on celebration, I, I really wanted to ask you about, particularly because of the experience that I had yeah. this year. What, what, tell me more about what, what are you curious about in particular? Well, okay. One, you know, am I really going to feel this way about celebrating a year from now? Um, that's one. Uh, yeah. Cause you say that, you know, research shows that celebrating positive events with others increases our feelings that they will be there for us if we encounter tough times in the future. And there's a small part of me that's like, okay, well, maybe not. Right, right, right. Experience that I had. Mm. Um, sorry, you had that experience. That's a terrible experience and not joyful at all. Um, and I think for me, it's a little bit symptomatic of what I'm I, I'm seeing as a whole, which is that we are not celebrating as much as we used to, and we're often not showing up for 
um, for each other as we used to in person. And that celebration has been reduced in our lives often to uh, a Facebook wall post with, you know, a couple emojis um, and not, uh, you know, a real face-to-face experience. Um, and so I... I feel, uh, you know, I find that a really disappointing trend because of, because of, you know, what I've shared about the power of celebration in our lives. Um, I think for me, it's less, I mean, I think focusing on who didn't come, I used to do that a lot. And now I have changed my perspective on it to focus on who is there um and to think about the fact that actually you had um you know three couples you had six people um who really love you who were there to celebrate with you and that is the most important thing um that uh it's really not about uh like all of the people in our lives showing up it's about the you know and it can be clarifying that way i think um it can also be, you know, a fluke, um, that, you know, certain things happen at certain times and, uh, and not every celebration is going to happen the way that, that we, um, envision or hope it will. Um, but I do think, I, I hope that you don't feel that way about it in a year from now. Um, and, um, yeah, I don't know if I have greater wisdom on it than that. Um, but, but I do think, you know, focusing on who is there, that it's a really great celebration can be two people. Um, and, uh, you know, I often don't do big celebrations, uh, anymore. I sometimes for me, it's, uh, like for my birthday, I'm like, okay, you know what? I just want to get together with like the, a couple, uh, you know, one other couple or something like that. Um, and, uh, and focus on the depth of it as opposed to necessarily the breadth. Well, yeah, well, one, thank you. I appreciate that. That actually gives me a a lot of uh, comfort and you looking at the experience very differently and reframing it. Uh, the other thing I wonder about when it comes to celebration and, and this, you may be able to relate to because you've also just had a book come out is, you know, wanting to celebrate something, but also dealing with the fact that you have unmet, unmet expectations. Um, how do you resolve those two paradoxes? Yeah. I mean, so yeah, well, like, so when you have a book come out, it's super weird, right? Because you don't really know, especially when it's your first book, you don't know what to expect. You don't know what's supposed to happen. And you're sort of like, should I be celebrating? I mean, like, yes, you should be celebrating. It's a big thing, but you sort of feel like you're waiting for some, you know, you don't know what else is, is going to come. And so for me, it's all about, um, I, I actually think I'm in retrospect, I'm really happy we did what we did. We celebrated, my husband and I celebrated when I finished writing the book. Um, so we didn't have a, like a traditional book party. Um, when the book came out, we actually celebrated when I finished writing it. And that was the celebration because that was the completion of the achievement. Um, and that was the thing that really mattered. Um, and yes, it, like, it's so important that it's out in the world and the celebration sort of continues, um, in the interactions and having, um, with people who are reading it. And there's so much joy in that. Um, but I think focusing on the thing that is, uh, that is really the achievement as opposed to necessarily the outside validation of the world, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, given that it was the entire message of my book, yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Uh, so I want to bring it full circle by talking about uh, what I think are two really interesting ways to end. And, and that is the ideas of transcendence and magic, because I think, you know, so, so many things in our lives, we really don't have explanations for it. And I love the way you described this. You said transcendence detaches us from the world, lifting us up above the currents and eddies of our routines. 
Yet paradoxically, instead of distancing us from what we care about, it seems to bring us closer, closer to others, closer to what feels truly important, closer even to ourselves. How does that happen? So transcendence is all about elevation and um, and a sense of perspective. And one of the things that happens in um, when we you know get a little bit of elevation, um, so say a treehouse or a hot air balloon, or even just looking out the window of a of a plane, um, or uh, just going up on your roof, um, if that's a safe place to go. I don't recommend anyone go up on a roof. It's not safe, but, um, climbing a tree, like all of these things. Um, I was a really big tree climber as a kid. Um, and I had a really amazing climbing tree and I used to go up there to get perspective. Um, you know, even as a kid and what happens is that, um, obviously our view of the world changes. Um, but something else happens too, which is that our, a sense of joy that we find in elevation, um, which is a cross-cultural uh, universal. Um, every culture has, um, me- you know, metaphors for joy that have sort of an upward quality um, or a lightness to them, whereas um, sadness uh, in many cultures has a, a heaviness to it. Um, so that vertical spectrum uh, is tends to be cross-cultural. Um, so when we uh, get a little bit of elevation, the other thing that sometimes happens is we can feel awe. Um, so we have the mingling of joy and awe and awe is a separate emotion, um, like surprise, surprise is a separate emotion and awe is an emotion, um, that has to do with when we perceive a sense of vastness, something really big in the world. Um, and, um, uh, a sense of, um, of sort of great power, um, and and that is coupled with a need for um, what psychologists call an accom- a need for accommodation. The idea that um, we can't uh, quite understand everything that we're seeing, um, that we have to sort of readjust our worldview. So um, so when you see something really big, it sort of gives you this sweeping feeling of awe. And one of the things that comes with awe, research um, by uh, Dacher Keltner and um, others at Berkeley, um, his colleagues at Berkeley, shows that something happens where we are, per- our self-perception, um, we see ourselves as smaller um, in relation to the world, actually physically smaller. Um, so the world feels big, um, and we feel small and there's a real, um, there's a real joy in that, um, because that feeling of smallness tends to make us feel more connected to other people, tends to make us less focused on our own interior concerns. And I would say that's probably like a meta theme throughout my work is like, how do we get outside of our own heads? Um, and back into the world. And I think that is one of the things that does that, um, that feeling of awe. So transcendence is a feeling of joyful joy and awe mingling together um, that gives us this feeling of perspective, um, feeling of distance from the world, and yet paradoxically makes us feel more connected to the world and makes us feel more connected to others. Wow. Yeah, I guess that explains why uh places and cities that are often like the tallest lookout points in the cities. Are yeah. So every, uh, every, I mean, every medieval town, you know, in Europe has one um, and you can always pay like a couple of euros to go to the top. And it's funny because obviously they were there, you know, they were built um, for defense purposes, you know, so that um, the cities could see towns could see marauders at a distance, but now they still stand because we cannot resist um, being able to get that elevated view. There's a real joy in having that elevated view. Oh, yeah, it's funny. It is, like, as you're saying that, I can't help but think back to moments at uh, Berkeley when we'd go to the top of the Campanile. And it's one of those strange places where 
strangely enough, even though you could never see it this way in San Francisco because it's too damn cloudy all the time, you can see the entire bay from that lookout point. Right. And and once you have that sort of sense of breadth of perspective, it and and what's really interesting actually is that just getting a little bit of elevation, researchers have found actually also makes us uh, take a more big picture view on things. Um, so they'll do these studies where they at, they have people walk up a flight of stairs um, or they have people walk down a flight of stairs and they have them, um, you know, say, they give them a topic, um, like they say someone's painting a room and then they ask them to sort of say what they're really doing. And when people have walked up a flight of stairs, um, they're more likely to say that they're painting the room because they want to make the room look fresh. Um, so they're more focused on the sort of broader motivation and the broader context behind the decision. Um, whereas when people have walked down a flight of stairs, they're more likely to focus on um, that they're applying brush strokes, right? They're more likely to focus on the micro um, the micro action involved in this experience. So uh, I think it's, it's actually um, research suggests that when we get that elevated view, we do get perspective and we start to see the broader context behind things as well. Well, I want to finish with uh, magic. Uh, and you say that wonder overlaps with awe and both emotions elicit a similar wild-eyed jaw-dropped expression. But unlike awe, which has both positive and negative strains, wonder is nearly always used to describe a joyous feeling. It often arises when we find ourselves in new surroundings, which explains what, which helps explain why travel can be so magical and why childhood prompts such a blurring between magic and real life. And the question that raises for me is, how do we blur, you know, create that blurring between magic and real life as adults? Yeah, I think um, this was definitely the question on my mind when I started working on this topic, because I felt like magic certainly is a source of joy. And, and if you look at children's lives, I mean, you're allowed to believe in the tooth fairy, you're allowed to believe in Santa Claus. And then there's a period of time where we have to put that away. Um, and magic only is allowed to live in fiction. Um, and what was interesting for me was when I read this study that said that in Iceland, um, a 58% of the population believes in elves. And I thought, well, that's amazing. You know, this is one of the most educated countries on earth. I think one in 10 um, Icelanders is a published author. I mean, they're a really highly educated society and yet they still have a concept of magic. And the way that this manifests in the culture is unbelievable. You know, they will move construction projects if let's say a bulldozer breaks during the process, someone will say, this is elves interfering because this construction project is taking over their habitat. Um, and they'll send in an interpreter and that interpreter will negotiate a moving of the road or a moving of the settlement, or they'll have to move a, you know, a, a a boulder to a, a safe, you know, another sacred place, um, so that the elves, uh, homes are not too terribly disrupted. And then they will uh, proceed with the project. But sometimes you'll see these roads that sort of curve, they like snake around a boulder, um, because, uh, of this, you know, the, this respect for the elves. So it's, um, it's cultural. It's actually woven into the culture. And I think that, um, one of the reasons after talking to a, a folklore expert in Iceland is that in Iceland, the landscape is so dramatic. You know, he, he said that um, the magic is a reflection of, it's a personification of the power that lives in the landscape. And I think when we think about it that way, um, 
we find more magic by getting closer to the parts of the world that are less predictable um, and that are more uh, whimsical and uncertain. So in Iceland, that's everywhere because you have geothermal um, power, you have uh, steam wafting out of, uh, you know, snow-covered fields, you have geysers shooting up out of nowhere, you have these crazy waterfalls that have rainbows running over them at all times. Um, and so you have hot springs um, that, again, are in the middle of snow-covered fields. You have the northern lights overhead. So you have all these manifestations of power. But I think we can find that in subtle ways, too. Um, you know, things like um, if you hang a prism in your window, uh, in a sunny window, you'll you'll see it sort of shatters the light into rainbows. And that's always a wonderful thing, you know, when the sun passes through at just the right angle and then suddenly you have rainbows in your room. Um or, um, you know, if you're outside when the fireflies are winking in the darkness or when you um, eat what, wintergreen lifesavers um, in the darkness and then you see them spark, um, there are these sort of parts of the world that are um, that are unpredictable. And I think we cultivate our sense of wonder when we get close to that. And, and generally that means getting out into wilder places. And I actually think that that is the deeper story behind um, what has, why the elves have persisted is that they are kind of, um, they're a conservation tool. Uh, and so, um, you know, they're said to live in the wildest places in Iceland. And so whenever, re, you know, a development th starts to threaten to encroach on their space, um, on the spaces of wildness and magic, um, you know, that's when uh, they are perceived to sort of rise up and say, hey, wait, like, let's move this so that it's not encroaching on this wild space. And we, just because we don't have that in our culture um, doesn't mean that I don't th that we can't access it by getting out to those wild places and spending more time um, in uh, in the worlds of invisible forces. I think, you know, you as a surfer really probably understand this, that, you know, being out in the ocean um, and feeling the buoyancy of the waves, the almost magical buoyancy of the waves um, is probably, is, is one of the most powerful ways to experience magic in daily life. I and mean, then I think anytime we can get to that, and it's not always that far from us. Um, it can be in your garden, you know. I have a, um, I planted, I didn't realize this, but I planted uh, one of hummingbirds' favorite flowers in my garden. Um, it's bee balm, and they apparently really like red flowers. And so this year um, in New York State, I was visited by a hummingbird many times in my garden, and that was an incredibly magical experience. And yet it was, you know, in a, uh, fairly, um, you know, developed area. So I, we can access it, but I think it's getting out, um, getting outside a little bit more. Wow. Uh, this has been amazing. Uh, truly. I, I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Uh, so I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our, okay. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something on the stage? Ooh. Um, I, it, to me, it comes back to the curiosity. I think that when you have, I think people, um, people who are curious, curiosity is the precursor to passion. And I think that's what we are um, drawn toward is someone who's really excited about something. And I think it all starts with uh, people who are engaged in the world, who are curious about the world and who follow that who are free, who feel, um, who feel driven to follow it. Well, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to and share your story and your insights with our listeners. This has been really phenomenal. Well, it's been uh, great for really me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Where, where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, your books and everything that you have to do? 
Um, so the book is uh, Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness. You can find it wherever books are sold. Um, and you can find me at The Aesthetics of Joy. Um, uh, so it's at, uh, it's aestheticsofjoy.com um, and as, as the, at Aesthetics of Joy on Instagram. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. 
This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.